Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Andrew, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Yeah, hi, I'm Andrew Coogan. I am a professor of biological psychology at Minute University in Ireland, uh, which is just outside Dublin. <clears throat> My sort of research interest is in sleep and uh, dissecating clock and our body clocks and how that works in the real world. Um, one of the things we've worked on over the years is sleep and ADHD. And I think we'll be talking about that quite a bit, Robbie. Um, but I'm in, interested in things like how uh, life in general impacts on our sleep and sleep impacts on our life in general. So I'm interested in things like working time, um, interested in things of like even like when you wake up uh, to take medication, let's say if you have diabetes, how that might impact your sleep. Um, and also really interested in on how important sleep is for physical and psychological health. So that's a brief intro to me. Uh, first of all, I love the accent. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to let's let's I wanted to talk about like the circadian rhythm, the clock. Um, I've heard that mentioned a lot, and I don't even honestly think I could give you an exact description of what that is. But also, I'm, I think it's important to talk about why sleep is important to our life and to our you know mental health as well as our physical health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll start with the second question, which is about why sleep is important. We'll spend about one third of our lives asleep. So just from an evolutionary point of view, sleep is obviously doing something super important or doing many super important things, or else we wouldn't spend such a big proportion of a life being asleep. When we look in the animal kingdom, basically every animal sleeps or has a state that appears to be sleep-like. Um, so we don't think there are any animals out there that don't sleep. Now, Sharks. some some animals sleep long, some animals sleep short. Um, so we don't really know why. Um, what's the difference? So why does something like a horse? Horse might only sleep two or four hours a day, while um, like a little shoe might sleep 20 hours a day. So we don't really know uh, why that difference exists, but we're pretty sure that sleep is indispensable. Um, so a nice way to think about it is, you know, sometimes they start to talk and say, well, listen, tell me about something that our body does that we couldn't live without. And people generally say like breathing or your heartbeat, but probably sleep is, is up there with those things. Just, we don't really understand what it's for it's probably not for a single thing you know so wakefulness isn't for a single thing we don't think well why am i awake give me one reason why i'm awake so sleep's probably doing lots of different things to allow us to sort of be awake and function well the next day so it's it's sort of it's a really fascinating subject because you know every we we all do it um some of us do it better than others um but when we do it, you know, we enter into these different states of consciousness, you know, and sleep, there's different types of sleep. You know, we'd be familiar with a sort of deep, deep sleep where we don't have sort of conscious perception. And then we've got this sort of super vivid dream sleep we have. Um, so. And we enter into this 
each day and we, we don't really think about it. Um, it's, it's literally been described by people as going to another dimension when they sleep. That's how strange it is. It's because it's something like you're not going anywhere. You're staying in your bed, but in your mind starts doing its own motion pictures and things of that sort where it creates narratives and scripts like it's a whole other life you're living. Sure, exactly. And that's part of our normal life. And the way I start to think about it is, you know, you go back to the 60s, and the psychedelic era, you know, when LSD and all is doing around in Timothy Leary. And there's sort of mad moral panic about, oh, my God, you know, you know, these altered states of consciousness and what harms are we doing? Yet each day we go through these multiple altered states of consciousness. And that's just part of our normal lives. You know, it's it's it, it's so routine. You know, it takes us to step back and think about, well, you know, and think, well, that's that's pretty amazing that we do that. Has there ever been a certain diagnosis or a certain criteria that like obviously they say six to eight hours an average person needs for sleep? But I feel like now in today's time, I'm seeing it a lot more frequently is that people either put that they can sleep kind of in a spectrum, like they can sleep during the day or they can sleep at night, but they always sleep either. It seems like the hours are getting shorter. Like people, I'm I'm like a three hour type of guy that gets when it gets sleep, but some people talk about six hours, maybe even five. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of sort of public health data out there that suggests that our sleep duration is shrinking, you know, and that's probably as a reflection of the pressures in society that we, we sort of operate under, you know, jobs, college, school, whatever. What tends to get squeezed out is our opportunity for sleep. Um, so you can be the best sleeper in the world, but if you're not afforded the opportunity to sleep, you're not going to have sufficient sleep. So, so there's a big group of people out there that experience that, which are shift workers. And there's a lot of shift workers out there Um maybe 20 to 25 percent of the workforce do shift work and again they're especially night workers working when they're supposed to be asleep when their biology is geared up for them to be asleep and then trying to come back home and sleep during the day and we're not really built for that um so we know shift workers are a group of people that don't get good quality sleep, get insufficient sleep. And we think shift work is associated with sort of adverse health outcomes in the long term. So yeah, it's, it, it's definitely a common problem. And it seems to be one that has got more prevalent over the last maybe 25, 30 years. Is there, when you mentioned health outcomes, is that like stuff that would be more like cardiovascular disease or things of that sort? Or is there like a dementia link that comes into context? I would have to think after a while, your mental, like your brain would just start kind of eroding a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It, so so the answer is it's both. Um, so there's definitely links between insufficient sleep. And that varies according to person to person. We've all got different needs. You know, I might need eight or nine hours sleep. Somebody genuinely might only need five hours sleep, but it's sort of not gaining that in the long term, not meeting if you like our own sleep needs in the long term is linked with things like increased risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, um, even some cancers. So all the sort of big, big hitters, if you like, yeah. for, for chronic physical health. It definitely is important also for um, psychological health. Um, look, we all know if we don't get enough sleep, 
we're sort of ratty the next day, bad tempered, difficulty concentrating, um, and generally our quality of life is impaired. Um, so, so we can think about the, uh, the outcomes of bad sleep in the long term, sort of over years, but also in the shorter term. So basically the next day. So if I have a bad night's sleep, what happens the next day? What are my impairments the next day? And then if that obviously goes on day on day on day on day, now it's transitioning from what we call an acute problem into a chronic problem, into a sort of ongoing, this is now ongoing for months to years, et cetera. Now, is there any evidence to show that there's like an exact link to shorter lifespans for people that get like, let's say you got a whole bunch of people that work graveyard graveyard shifts or something like that. Is there a link? I know it's all long-term and it might just be anecdotal evidence, but when you look at it, I'm, I I would have to think that people would have shorter lifespans, not just whether they're going to get a propensity for dementia or any type of brain disorder, but if even if your clock is shifted, which I mean, it's going to lead us into ADHD because I've looked up a lot about ADHD and it seems like a lot of people with ADHD have this in a spectrum or some type of difficulty with sleep and that's just hardwired into us from when we're born it seems like so i'm curious in that area as well too so so to go back to answer your question about shift workers um shift workers seem to be at greater risk for lots of chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease like type 2 diabetes it also seems to be linked with lower so greater mortality, so uh, shorter lifespan. Congruent with, you know, obviously, if you're going to be more prone to the types of things that are likely yeah. to kill you, it's, it's you know, it, it sort of follows that you'd expect to live less long. Um, we're, we're not sure why that is. So one of the things we do know about shift workers in general is that they're more likely to smoke, more likely to drink, or likely to use substances, and all those things obviously can can knock on as well and have significant health impacts. Um, we know diet is super important. So you know, if you're working the graveyard shift, often you know you just you can just eat whatever's in the vending machine. You know, yeah. if there isn't a kitchen or whatever. It's it's pretty difficult to eat healthy and have a have a healthy lifestyle during night work i mean and organizations do a pretty bad job of facilitating that in general so all those things certainly contribute as well to to the picture in shift workers so shift work is it's, it's complicated and you know it's important to say you know the, the risk associated with shift work isn't you know it's not like the new smoking you know we know smoke smoking cigarettes probably increases your risk of lung cancer by 20-fold. You know, we're, we're talking, so 2,000%, we're talking maybe a 40% increase in risk of the types of things we talk about associated with shift work. So it is important, there's a lot of people out there, but, you know, it's important to sort of place the risk on, on the spectrum of, of things and you know and there and there are some jobs that will always need shift work like police like like medics and nurses um frontline emergency staff you know those are 24 7 yeah well so society works in a 24-hour spectrum not just 12 hours of the day you know 
Yeah, but there's parts of society that we don't really need to work on a 24-hour spectrum. You know, we don't really need the supermarket at 3 o'clock in the morning. We don't really need, you know, to be able to call our insurance company at, you know, 2 a.m. You know, society has sort of chosen those things. Um, well, it's convenience. We've, convenience it's is con easier than people's health. But we've, yeah, we've discounted the cost. So we've taken the benefit and said, well, there's convenience, but we've discounted the cost. And that's that's a reflection of the societal values, you know, of the world we live in. Now, we mentioned um, going into ADHD a little bit, but obviously there's with ADHD, there's a lot of evidence to support that uh, most of them have problems with sleeping, whether it's either issue getting sleep or maintaining sleep, or I function off a low amount of sleep. Like if I get three hours, sometimes it feels like eight years. Like I'll wake up a drool on the pillow and everything. And I'm like, where, where was I? Is it, is it like sometimes I think it's like the next day and I, I wonder what that is. I don't know if it's just specifically an ADHD problem, but I've had it my whole life. But I have friends that have ADHD and they usually give me a range of sleeping patterns or varieties where they'll nap 20 minutes and it'll feel like 10 years. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, look, we know ADHD, like lots of other sort of psychiatric and psychological diagnostic, you know, boxes, is associated with high levels of sleep complaints. Um, now, part of that is a general feature of sleep. We think sort of anything that knocks out the system in general impacts on sleep. So sleep's this, I, I think it's a bit like your, your friend who always thinks you're talking about them and everything relates to them. You know, it's all about them. Sleep's a bit like that. So anything that sort of puts, puts you out, either in your mental life or your physical health, tends to be reflected in poor sleep. Um, but I, I think there's something much more fundamental in ADHD. Um, so we just did a study in um, just with colleagues running a clinic for kids with ADHD. And they found that 85% of kids attending their clinic had at least one sleep disorder. Um, and that would be pretty a pretty consistent finding on other studies as well. So, so there definitely is a very high burden of sleep problems associated with um, pediatric ADHD. And then when we look at um, those people who have ADHD as kids and then go on to have the condition into their adult life, which is about fifty percent. Yeah. Um, we find again high levels of sleep problems um, so high levels of insomnia high levels of other sleep disorders but the really interesting thing we found sort of in in our studies and lots of other people have found and i think this is slightly different in adhd than it is in in the other types of conditions we'd look at one of the really consistent findings we tend to see is that people with adhd have a later pattern of sleep and wake so this is something we call chronotype, which is a preference for going to bed early in the morning, uh, sort of early in the evening and waking early in the morning, to, which is a sort of morning preference, true an evening preference, going to bed late at night and getting up, you know, late into the later morning yeah. or early afternoon or whatever it is. And we find that ADHD in adults is definitely linked with a move towards eveningness. Um, 
And that's quite consistent. And lots of other people have found that. Now, don't really understand why that is, but it's it seems to be super consistent. One of the other things we've and other people have found a lot of in adults with ADHD is something we call sleep onset insomnia. So insomnia in general is a really common sleep disorder. About 10% of the population have chronic insomnia. And we define chronic insomnia as uh, difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, or having unrestorative sleep, i.e. waking up still feeling tired and groggy and, and all that. And that that's ongoing for most days of the week for at least a month or more. Um, so there's lots of insomnia out there. But people with ADHD or adults with ADHD probably have three times the rate of chronic insomnia that um, the general population has. And um, one of the things we see very, that seems to be super common in people with ADHD is a difficulty falling asleep, which we call sleep onset insomnia. We think that might be due to that shift in chronotype towards eveningness. So your body clock is basically telling you, no, I don't want to go to sleep yet. You know, I'm not scheduled to go to sleep for another couple of hours. So it's pushing us later and later. Um, and therefore, if you're trying to sleep against that, you know, you're thinking, well, you know, got to get up for work or whatever. Now you've got a conflict and now you're finding it difficult to fall asleep because really for the optimal sleep, we want all the factors to align. Mm. You know, we want to be sleepy. We want our body clocks to tell us it's time to go to sleep. We want to have the opportunity to go to sleep. We want a nice quiet bedroom and all of that. Um, so when one of those things is out, we can now start having sleep problems. Um, I'm really interested to hear that you get by on sheer sleep. Yeah. Um, I mean, I work a late night job, so I usually go to the gym around 11. And depending on if it's my day off, I'll do maybe like I did this morning, six hours of cardio. And then, you know, came home, got groceries and stuff like that, got my stuff planned. But I usually try and get to bed and my window would be from 4 p.m. to that 8 p.m. Or sometimes it's seven thirty, and then after that, I don't. I can get up and start moving and having my. And I've always been like that since I was a kid. It's like right after dinner is where it kind of hits me. But if you stay up past it, ADHD people tend to get like this second wind, and yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no need. But if you gave me like like past couple of days, I was so burnt out. And I slept probably thirteen hours, fourteen hours, and that happens like maybe once a month. I'll get some type of. Thing where I'll have to a whole day where I'm like, I need to sleep this whole day. So I don't know what that is, but it's interesting to me that a lot of these people are evening people when it comes with ADHD and sleeping. Is it so that, that to me, I'm not like the opposite. I mean, I like being up in the middle of the night, but it's always that early morning. I would consider that early morning, even though some people are like, no, that's the middle of the damn night. I'm like, no, it's early morning for me. Exactly. You may think of it as early morning, but you know, in the in the sort of broader scheme of things, it it may be that you're just a super late person. And what you've done is that you've sort of self-selected a schedule that suits your biology, you know, suits your natural rhythms. Um, and that's that's great when we're able to do that. Um, the problem obviously then gets if we look at people that are not as free to sort of select, okay, when I work, when I, you know, when you go to the gym, when you do whatever, 
So if you look at sort of high school kids, you know, and high school kids, and especially in the States, I mean, that's, you know, where school times can be super early, like at yeah. 6 or 7 a.m. It's I like mean, it's... 6.30 or 7 a.m. And most of the kids don't go to bed until like 1 a.m. Yeah, I mean, that's that's nuts because adolescents actually have their body clocks shifted late. Um, it's not them being lazy or anything. That's just the way their biology works. And then when they sort of move into adulthood, most of them sort of move back a bit more morning this. So we're taking the group of people, you know, who are least suited to getting up to being in school at 7 a.m. and we're making them go to school at 7 a.m. Um, so it's when the conflict between our sort of preferred rhythms, but then what society or what we need to do, and that becomes a conflict. That's what we think is probably a problem. Um, and certainly to our our own research when we've looked at day-to-day rhythms in people with ADHD, most have fairly regular, you know, not not terrible, but sort of shifted like two hours later than their sort of controls, their comparators. But occasionally we would, you know, it's certainly not rare to have a very unusual rhythm, like sort of you're describing for yourself. Um, we've certainly seen examples of that, and we can pick it up just just in the like the activity tracker data. Um, so definitely, it definitely happens. Um, the other thing we don't really know a ton about in ADHD is the effect of medications used on ADHD on sleep. So unsurprisingly, most psychoactive medications impact on sleep for better or for worse, or they may make some parts better and some parts worse. So drugs like Ritalin, which is commonly used in, you know, as a frontline treatment in ADHD, we think impacts on sleep. We don't think it explains certainly all of the ADHD related sleep changes we see, but we think it's sort of part of the picture. Yeah. Um, so we did a study a few years ago when we looked at a group of adults with ADHD who were on psychostimulant medication versus a group of adults with ADHD who weren't on medication versus a group of controls. So we think there is an effective of the medication, but there definitely is a ADHD alone effect, which is probably you know much bigger. Now, with ADHD, like brains are hardwired differently than some of people who are more neurotypical. Is is that would that affect like trying to get into REM sleep or those stages of sleep that people need that they slowly descend into? Yeah. So so when we look at that type of data we don't really see any differences. Um, and that's not only true of ADHD, but lots of other lots of other conditions as well. So, you know, so we don't really see, okay, there's a change in the amount of REM sleep people might have or the change in slow wave sleep. Um, and results from studies tend to be very inconsistent. So there's nothing you could really pin down and say, yeah, 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 that, that looks like, you know, a, a signature of an ADHD brain in sleep. So, so we don't have that. What we're sort of have got quite interested in is the effect sort of ADHD symptoms can have on our sleep wake behavior. So l- l- let me sort of explain what I mean by that. 
we make decisions about when we go to sleep, you know, um, unless we're super, super sleep deprived and super sleepy, we don't just fall asleep on the spot. We can sort of make a decision. I'm going to go to bed now. I'm going to stay up another couple of hours. And we sort of, in, in doing that, we weigh up the risk and reward. Okay. So I think, okay, I'm, you know, going to watch another episode of The Witcher or whatever on Netflix. Yes. But but now I've got to go to school or go to college or go to work tomorrow. And I'm, you know, I might be really tired. And it's how we sort of make that balance between the, the risk and the reward. But one of the things we know about ADHD is that what we term time preferences are quite altered. So people with ADHD in general much prefer rewards now versus rewards in the future, or they discount the cost, the future cost of things. Um, so it's something we call temporal discounting. So, you know, I'll give you $5 but you've got to give me $10 back next week. And people with ADHD would be more likely to say, Grant, I'll have the $5 now, you know. Well, the next week doesn't even exist. It immediately goes out the window. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, you're thinking about now, you're not as much focused on the future as other people would be. So I am sort of think that's, a really interesting thing about, well, how do we make decisions about bedtime? And how do we make those calculations? And why that partly explains some of the some of the late night effects we see associated with ADHD. Um, and then one of the things we know happens is that light in the evening will push our biological clock even later. So we're now in this sort of loop where if I stay up watching Netflix till 2 a.m., well, the light probably coming from my telly and the room I'm in is actually going to act on my brain through my eyes and it's going to push my body clock to be even later. So now we've got this sort of cycle where we're pushing ourselves later and later. So our behavior is now influencing our biology. Um, and now we're in this sort of cycle. Um, so I think that's interesting. I think one of the things we come across you know, um, and it's a classic hallmark in ADHD is what's termed executive dysfunction. So, our, you know, people's ability to plan and to organize. We think that's probably quite important. Certainly, probably for younger kids more, you know, how you wind down for bedtime, how you sort of, you know, tune out those racing thoughts um, and sort of do relaxation into bedtime and sleep onset. Um, and we think probably that that's another thing that's really important, um, especially for kids and the ability, you know, for smaller kids to just be able to deal with the, you know, the emotional residue of the day and just deal with that before you're trying to sleep. Because we know one thing, and this is true for everyone, you know, that sort of racing mind thing, staring at the ceiling, thinking about, all the things that have gone wrong or all your worries or uh, what we term rumination. That's that's a key thing that we know is super important in uh, predicting insomnia. Um, it's definitely one of the things we don't want to do. <laughs> so, so we think sort of classic ADHD features can impact on sleep just in that sort of cognitive and behavioral way. So even even if the sleep systems 
in the ADHD brain were exactly the same as the sleep systems in the non-ADHD brain. Just the just our, the behaviors and the torque patterns associated with ADHD may make the sleep different, if that makes sense. I think it like it, with ADHD symptoms, obviously there's many subtypes. I have the hyperactivity and many other factors that are a hindrance to trying to get sleep, but also with the lack of sleep, my hyperactivity goes down a little bit. So then when I do get that day where I do crash really hard, but overall sleep is the best thing because with ADHD, there is a large amount of emotional dysregulation. Like either we experience things at 10 times what a normal person should be experiencing, like depression or anger or sadness or all this. I find that a nap tends to help balance that emotional irregularities that come with that. And I would have to think with a child, it would be some, I mean, that's why they tell kids take a nap or something. You're just cranky. You're tired or something like that. That emotional regulation gets reset. Yeah, definitely. So we think REM sleep and REM sleep stands for rapid eye movement sleep because your eyes go like that during REM sleep. And that's the sleep during which sleep time during which we dream mostly. Um, we think REM sleep is, is really important for emotional regulation. Um, so, for example, people with PTSD um, appear to have changes in their REM sleep. And it's taught that the changes in the REM sleep hinder our ability to strip out the emotionality of memories. Okay, so let me explain what that means. Let's say I'm a kid, I fall out of a tree, I break my arm, okay? It hurts like hell. Okay, now I'm an adult remembering the time I fell out of a tree and I broke my arm. What I remember is that that happened. So the episodic memory chase of that. But what I don't recall is the horrible pain and that sort of visceral and emotional feeling. But people with PTSD would ex re-experience the whole of the experience. And we think that something in the sleep is sort of sleep problems are preventing that emotional re-experiencing from being dialed down or extinguished or just sort of dampened away. Um, so we know sleep is super important in emotions. You know, um, people with depression, nearly everyone with a diagnosis of major depressive disorder will have sleep problems and lots of them are super, super um, significant sleep problems. And actually going to, sort of going off on a tangent a little bit, we know that if we, there's emerging ev evidence that if we adjust the sleep problems in people with depression, their depression gets better. Um, yet if we do cognitive behavioral therapy for depression, in people with depression and insomnia, the depression gets better, but their insomnia doesn't. So actually treating the sleep problems can help us treat the depression as well as the sleep problems. So we, we definitely we think sleep is super important for emotional regulation and sort of helping us, you know, dampen down maybe the, uh, yeah, as as you described it, the sort of um, hyper-amplified, you know, emotional responses to, to stuff. This um, is probably an anecdote, not really an anecdotal one, but maybe one we don't really have information on yet. But do you think it's because our 
brain is pulling something out of our consciousness or subconscious, something that's deep back there. A lot of people's dreams, or even when they lose a family member, they have a dream about that family member. It's a way of like kind of dealing with trauma and things of that sort that make it less painful. So when you wake up, you get over kind of the trauma in a sense. So, so what a, we don't really know what genes are. So, you know, they're awesome is what they are. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. But we don't really think about genes in the Freudian sense that they have some literal type of meaning. What we think genes really are, they're fragments of information being shuttled around our brain as we sleep. So when we sleep, what our brain is doing, it's processing what's gone on during the day, you know? So one of the things our brain has to decide is what we remember, what's important to remember, what we can just forget about, sort of show that away. So actually we know that bits of the brain replay sequences of actions that happen during the day. Um, and that seems to be part of the memory system, you know. Um, and then what we think probably happens during REM sleep is that these bits of information get sort of chucked up, if you like, to our mind's eye. Um, and then there'd be sort of random bits of information. And then because the way our brains work is to try to impose a narrative on things, um, we sort of construct these bizarre narratives that link these random bits of information. Um, and that's what may be a dream. So a dream may actually be a side effect of what's going on in our brain, um, rather than being the purpose in and of itself, if 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 that makes sense. Then we don't know. And one of the problems with dream research in general is that we sleep in 90-minute cycles. So we go down into what we term non-REM sleep, and then back up into, and then we have a period of REM sleep in which we dream, and then back into non-REM sleep. But the non-REM sleep wipes the memory of the dream that we just had. Yeah. So to remember a dream, basically, we've got to wake up from the dream sleep. And that's what we know normally happens because the second half of the night has more REM sleep in it than the first half of the night. So we're much more likely when we are, when we wake up after having a seven or eight hour sleep, if we do that naturally without an alarm clock, we're waking up more likely from a period of REM sleep and we can recall that. Um, but we won't remember a dream from earlier yeah. in, the, in the night. Now, I had an experience, and this is something that I found really fascinating. Um, where I had a dream, and in my dream was a component, was a memory of another dream. You know, like hmm. a place that only existed. Like a in, hat inside a hat, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I was looking at this, and there's very little science on this. But like as a neuroscientist, I thought, well, that's, that's amazing. So how does our brain encode the memories of dreams? Because we know how our brain encodes memories of a conscious and awakening experience. But how does our brains encode the memory of dream then to be able to sort of achieve that and sort of show it up into the suit yeah. of a subsequent dream? Um, and, and people experience dreams in, you know, very different ways. You know, some people have super vivid dreams. Some people, you know, dreams are much more visual. Some people's dreams are more sort of 
narrative like you know sort of tortured than well that's with adhd there's a couple studies on nightmare frequencies more impacted on adhd and they don't know why i've seen every study just says that there's not really an explanation why but i've explained dreams on this show before that have been some that really still stick with me. I could tell you the exact detail of every single one, like Nick Swartzen being attacked by a seal. I can't tell you why I like, I like Nick Swartzen. He's a great guy, but I explained this 45 minute trip of this, what this dream was to my buddy. And he's always on here trying to dissect my dreams and the meanings of what they mean out of them. But I can't, it's not a real experience. I didn't experience anything, but when I was in that dream, it felt so real. Like it was like happening right in front of me, which I mean, it makes them ever more fascinating, but good God. And and, and there's one thing, there's some really interesting stuff about dreams. Um, so having dreams about school, so the high school, when you're 50 or something like that is ridiculous. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah but, but that, uh, and that seems to be a cross-cultural phenomenon. So there's something in the adolescent brain that we all have these, dream more about our school years. And in Ireland, sort of the, the terminal exam we do when we finish high school, it's called the Leaving Cert. And everyone has dreams about their Leaving Cert, you know, you know, waking up going, how am I supposed to do this exam? You know, it's 30 years since I studied this. And it, everyone you talk to has exactly the same dreams. Um, so, so there are periods in our life that, you know, the, the sort of, if you like, the semantic or the episodic content of which seems to reappear in our dreams more frequently. Um, and But yeah, it's 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 pretty wild stuff, you know. And we've all, I think, experienced that when you wake up from a dream and you go, "What the hell is yeah. that?" About? Yeah. <laughs> What's the meaning of that? I know people always keep like they're like keep a dream journal, but there's some of them I wake up from. I'm like, I don't know even if I even tell anybody that I'm gonna get locked up a hundred percent in this illusion. Well, 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 there's an effect called the dream lag effect, um, which is that if you watch a movie or something. Okay, contents of that movie might be incorporated into your dream the next night. And then it sort of goes away for the next few days. But about a week later, there's a high there's a higher chance that contents of that movie would pop up in your dream. Um, and again, probably reflecting how your brain is pushing that information around, you know, in order to sort of store it in the long term. Um so some so I think we all you know you can fall asleep and have a dream and there's someone that you met the previous day and you say okay that's why I dreamt about him you know I met him the next day you know at a week's remove it can seem a bit hard but that's an actual effect um but there's stuff yeah that pops up and you go man you know what is that about <laughs> is there actual science to show that those like white noise machines and all that really help with people getting sleep yeah that's that's a good question so my wife uses a white noise machine um there have been a couple of recent trials on those which are supportive of the idea that they can help um again not particularly clear why um so one of the things we think people who have bad sleep tend to do is have something called sleep attentional biases. 
um, which is basically their brains being hypervigilant for anything that is going to be perceived as a nuisance, you know, and impacting on their sleep. So it could be the cushion being, you know, your pillow being too hard, too soft, the mattress being too hard, too soft, the duvet being too, too warm, the duvet not being warm enough, the temperature in the room being too hot, a sliver of light coming into the side of the curtain, anything like that. And we think that people who have um, poor sleep, the brain is sort of hyper-tuned to those things. So it's going to find something in your environment that's going to sort of make it annoyed. And maybe the white noise sort of blanks that out, just provides a sort of constant... That it it might be that the constant noise is better than the occasional noise. Yeah. So if you had a really quiet... Um, bedroom and then you know something clatters outside or something happens that that could be more annoying than a constant noise now maybe to do with the frequency or lots of other things and so it may be those things may be more effective if you live in a sort of super quiet area rather than you know maybe if you live in a major city on New a, York next to the subway track. Yeah, or something. exactly. You're you're just used to that and you're not gonna notice. Um yeah, so so there is some evidence and for a lot of this stuff, you know, you know, as scientists we look at look, is there evidence that this stuff works or doesn't work? And often stuff works and we don't really know why it works, you know. We should be upfront about that. But there are things there are things like those white noise machines where there isn't a ton of evidence. Um, but look, if you try it and it works for you, great. Yeah. You know, and I can't say that enough, you know, we're all individuals. <laughs> you know, we talk about averages a lot, you know, like the average person needs, adult needs seven to eight hours sleep. Okay. That's true, but who's average? You know, so we have people out there that certainly can get by on five hours sleep perfectly fine for them you've got people out there that probably need nine to ten hours sleep and on average um if it's working for you it works for you you know and you know i think it's really important for us not to talk ourselves into having a problem when we don't have a problem i actually i must say i really i really respect um when someone tells me that they don't know something because then i'm like okay cool what's your thoughts on it? you know i like to get the person's perspective on it but like there's a lot of things like obviously it's an individual case by case basis i mean you can't judge the whole world there's some people that really work off two hours or some people that need like a full 10 or 15 but in my opinion i think the average population is probably underslept and i feel like with the way that society's moving forward we're somehow learning to function off less and less whether that's a good function or just being able to do the bare minimum but we have so much of stuff that sells you like sleep aid, sleep aid, sleep. It's now a whole industry. And I'm like, well, society could just ease up a little bit too on certain aspects of things, but everything's got to be moving forward. I mean, I live in a beach town. So most of the things that happen are late at night. They're after 9 p.m. They're bar gigs, club gigs. All my friends do those. And I'm like, look, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, you know, you're sleeping all day and then you're being up in the middle of the night. I kind of do that too, in some sense of the word, but I also get to enjoy some of my day 
And I feel like you need sunlight for things like the, oh, yeah. the benefit to that. So unless you're sleeping with the windows and doors open and the sun's just beating right on you, but yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you, you do try to, you know, we, we try to fix a problem of our own making in society with, with pills and gadgets um, and hacks rather than looking at, well, what's the, what's the root cause of this, you know? And as I said, you know, you could be the best sleeper in the world, but if you're not afforded the opportunity to sleep, your sleep health's not going to be good, you know? It's, and there's lots of people, you know, people having to work two jobs or whatever crazy hours that they're having to do, um, or gets pushed out to sleep. So a lot of this is is about to the societies in which we live and the sort of decisions and the values that those societies make. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. You mentioned sunlight there. Sunlight is something we know is actually super important. Um, one of the things we don't really compute very well is the difference between indoor electric light and outside sunlight. So I'm here in my office, I've got, you know, the fluorescent strip light. It's probably about 200 lux in here, which lux is just how we measure uh, luminance levels. I go outside now, it's a pretty miserable day here. It's gray and it's raining. But even then, it's probably a thousand lux. Uh, so the sunny day, it's going to be probably 10,000 lux. Now, our brains are built not to really perceive that level of difference. But there are systems in our brain that actually count basically how much light there is. And the better the light in the day, that's actually better for our sleep. And the best light in the day is provided by being outside. Um, and I remember reading a study a few years ago from, I think it was in San Diego. Um, so Southern California, basically, you know, the best climate, you know, you, you, you could have. Um, and it was measuring people's exposure to outside sunlight and it was something like 40 minutes a day in the in the cohort that they looked because they were in the cars commuting then they were inside in the office working and back in the car commuting and actually despite there being all this abundant sunshine the amount of sunshine they were actually being exposed to was very low um so getting out in the sunshine is actually super good for our sleep um there's lots of evidence to suggest that so you know for, again if probably a lot better than light boxes or any sort of gadget fix you know nature has given us the best solution um and that's that's getting out in the out in the sunshine because what our body clocks really want is a nice big difference between day and night you know, and that really helps them. So if we're out in the bright sunshine in the day and a nice dark night, that's, if you like, the optimal arrangement for our body clocks and therefore for our sleep. Is there a certain season that you see, I guess, maybe averages of populations get more sleep? I would have to think when it comes in with that seasonal depression, when it hits that winter time. Yeah, so so here, so... It, so it depends where you're located, you know, in the world. So in Ireland, where we are, we always think of ourselves mentally as being like New York or Boston. We're not. We're like Newfoundland, you know, we're I love way north. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not saying any, but, but we're, we're much further north. So that means we've got quite a big difference in 
the hours of daylight yeah. during the winter and the summer. So in in the in the in the winter in December, dawn will be nine half nine in the morning and dusk will be about four p.m. So we've got only about seven hours. Yeah, we've got only about seven hours of sunshine in the winter, but we have about sixteen hours of sunshine of day daylight in the summer. It, you know, in June. So we've got super long um, summer days and very short winter days. What we find in studies in Northern Europe is that people definitely, there is a more, people sleep longer and later in the winter. And that probably makes sense in that our body clocks are probably synced to sunrise. Um, and as sunrise gets later and later in the winter, we tend to sleep later um, in the winter. Probably partly due to things like, you know, we don't have sunshine coming in our blinds, you know, at 6 a.m. in the winter. Um, so our rooms are still dark when, when we're awakening. Um, but, but that's a finding that seems to be quite common. And it's actually a really interesting question because we don't really think about the effects of seasons on us very much you know anyone from an agricultural background knows about the seasons you know uh, spring lambs and seasonal breeding in 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 farm animals and in crop cycles and all that but we don't really think about well how does the season affect humans and it definitely does you know it may have been damped out you know electric lighting and all that may have sort of suppressed the effects of the seasons a little bit but it still definitely affects us um, and I think that's important because it's it's a sort of humble perspective, you know, that we're not that different. You know, we're, we're you know we've got all these fancy things we can do, but you know we're still an animal, and we still have this. You know, we're still driven by nature in in sort of similar ways to all the other animals that we live around. Well, you mentioned in the beginning about all even animals sleep, everything needs kind of sleep in a sense. I mean, but is there any connections that you can see? Like if, if you did a study on an animal, could you use the same results for someone that's like a person if it was maybe a little bit more precautious of a study, something you can't really do on a person? I don't know. I, I hate yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's a good question. You know, obviously, in any types of research abounded by ethics and the consensus would be that there may be some things you can do in animals that will be completely unethical in humans. So a classic example of that would be the question of, well, is sleep really required for life? Yeah. yeah? So do you, one way to try to answer that question is, well, what happens if you completely sleep deprive someone, you know? Hallucinations start to happen after like day four or something. Yeah, but but you can't keep doing it until someone dies. You yes, know, sure, you can't sure. keep. But but people have purported to show that in lab rats that if if you keep lab rats awake and there's various ways of doing that, that they will die of sleep deprivation in a shorter time than it would have taken to starve them to death. Now there's various possible explanations for that. Um, so, so there are 
there are some ideas that maybe contest that again, probably now these are experiments going back 50, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure anyone would be doing them now. Um, but there are things from animal experiments and animal models that have definitely taught us about sleep. Um, so I'll give you uh, an example. There is a set of conditions, a sleep disorder is called circadian rhythm sleep disorders. Um, and these are sleep problems that are primarily driven by something happening to the circadian clock or body clock. So the two forms of that, something called delayed phase sleep disorder or advanced uh, sleep phase disorder. So delayed uh, sleep phase disorder is just when you go to bed late and wake up late, you know. But but if you looked at the sort of bell curve of society, you'd be in the sort of latest couple of percent of that. Equally, people with advanced sleep phase disorder wake up very early and go to sleep very early. In and of themselves, these prob- these conditions may not be terribly significant, but they are significant when you have to live in a society that you completely don't fit into from yeah. either end. But the advanced sleep phase uh, disorder Researchers found a familial form of that. So that's basically where it ran really strongly in a family. And that's cool because you could do genetics on that family. Um, And that's a familial form is usually a rare form that's associated with a change in a single gene. So they're not common things, but they teach you in principle about how things can work. And they found that... as far as I remember, it was a family in Utah that had this um, this advanced sleep phase disorder. And they pinpointed it to a gene. And then they were able to go and look, well, if we go into mice and we make that gene, you know, we introduce that mutation that we've seen this family into that gene, what happens to those mice? And what happened to the mice is that they had the same advance in their circadian rhythm. So the effect was the same in the families with this uh, circadian rhythm sleep disorder than in the animals. And then in the animals, they were able to figure out, well, you know, at molecular level, well, how is that doing it? How is that gene speeding up their circadian clock, making it run a bit faster than it should? And we're able to sort of tease that out. So there are some cool examples of where we can directly learn. Um, and nature is amazing. Nature, there's so many sort of natural experiments out there, you know, and there's always a creature evolved to do something really weird and niche just through its own evolutionary history. And we can learn about stuff by looking at those, by looking at those animals. Um, you might know this answer to this question, but I just think it's a really, really good question. And it goes back to the seasonal thing. But is there any evidence to support or anything that you know of that people sleeping outside, like camping or doing something of that sort, has a different impact than someone that's sleeping in their house or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so this guy in the University of Boulder, in uh, University of Colorado in Boulder, and he did exactly this, a really neat experiment. So he took like a group of students uh, living in halls and dorms and whatever, and he brought them out camping in the Rockies. 
um, for a number of weeks and he measured their sleep and their rhythms and all this. And what happened over the weeks out camping is that their rhythms really started to synchronize with the sun time. So they started to synchronize to dawn and to dusk. Um, so illustrating the impact that sort of all our electric lighting and our social schedules have. But you can take those people, plop them out in the Rockies, and pretty quickly they sink really back into the, the solar rhythm, if you like. But it's probably how all humans lived up until maybe 150 years ago. Um, yeah, so so definitely. And another group of people um, people have been interested in is um, these sort of Aboriginal peoples. So sort of tribal people living sort of Aboriginal life, hunter-gatherer style lifestyles. And there's been some really interesting studies looking at these tribes and looking at sleep in them because they don't have electricity. So they're, they're again living the type of lifestyle that probably all humans lived hundred thousand years ago or so and looking about well how does their sleep look and their sleep what's interesting is the sleep looks not completely dissimilar to sort of modern western sleep if you like um they sleep about seven hours a night um but they're much more synced into their dawn and dusk they're the key sort of time cues in their environment and we even know that, you know, in the States, if you go to New York City or L.A. Um, and you look at sleep-wake rhythms there, they're going to be quite different than if you went to Iowa or Wyoming, you know, to really rural communities. Because we know that the rural communities are much more synced to solar time, to sun coming up and some sun going down. There's um a, a question I had about caffeine and how it might impact sleep. It actually has the opposite effect with people with ADHD. With some people with ADHD, caffeine can actually make them sleepy. If I drink an energy drink, I can go right to bed, and that's actually how I can get a couple hours. So I'm interested because we're in a society that obviously uses coffee. America runs on Dunkin' or whatever <laughs> you want to say, any of these slogans, but there's a lot of people that are like, I can't do anything without a cup of coffee or I need a cup of coffee, and I just think – I mean, what does that do? It keeps you up, obviously, but maybe you're not supposed to be up when you want to be up. Yeah. I mean, the, the evidence on caffeine is a bit, I could never make much sense of it. So the idea of caffeine uh, maybe took what it, why it was taught to sort of promote wakefulness. So one of the ideas in sleep science is that we have what's termed the sleep homeostat. Okay, that sounds complicated, but it's a really simple idea. And that's the idea that as soon as we wake up, we start accumulating sleepiness. And the longer we're awake, the more sleepiness we've accumulated. So it's a bit like an egg timer, and you just flip it over and the sands start running. Um, we don't know what the sleep homeostat is, how it works. So one of the ideas, well, it might be some type of neurochemical or something in the body or in the brain that accumulates during wakefulness and the longer we're awake the more it the more it will have accumulated and one of the candidate neurochemicals is something called adenosine and this is where caffeine comes in so the idea is that the longer we're awake our brains would have more adenosine in them and that adenosine would make us sleepy 
And therefore, the more adenosine we have, the sleep here would be until we sort of tip over and fall asleep. Caffeine is a antagonist of adenosine, i.e. it blocks the actions of adenosine. So the idea was that the caffeine would prevent adenosine that we've accumulated by being awake from actually tipping us into sleepiness. Uh, whether that's really true or not, I'm not sure. Um, this this is an old idea. It's been around quite a while. Um, the you know we we have lots of guidelines on caffeine and sleep. You know, sort of try to avoid it for a number of hours before trying to sleep. Um, I'm never terribly convinced by the evidence for or against that. Um, there's a lot of junk science done on caffeine in general. You know, every so often, you know, you'll read a New York Times article that, you know, having nine cups of coffee a day helps you live longer, will kill you in the next two years, whatever it it changes with every article you read. Um so so I'm not sure. Um and again, it probably comes down to if it works for you, right. You know, it's, you know, I, I think, you know, sometimes people get a sense, oh, you know, I think I'm okay, but I read this and it says what I'm doing is wrong, so maybe I should stop doing it. But look, man, you know, if it's working for you and sleep something, you know, it's not, you know, if you, you know, if you have a problem sleeping or, you know, if you don't. Um, so... It's it's not something that you you know is not observable, you know you, you can observe it in the sort of here and now, um, yeah. So so the caffeine story is one I'm I've never really been able to figure out, <laughs> which is the long and the short of it. Um, I'm not sure. Um, well, so look, have your caffeine if you want to have it, and don't if you don't. <laughs> uh this is a. Per, from your personal perspective, but what would you consider the most beneficial thing for sleep and obviously the most detrimental thing for sleep, whether it's just a lifestyle that people do, like either being on the cell phone, having a 60 inch TV when the room's the size of a bathroom or something is probably not the best option if you're trying to get some sleep. But I would consider, I don't know, some of these technologies I see, I go, I bet there's probably evidence that it helps. Like we talked about the white noise stuff, but like a certain pillow or $800 mattress. I'm like, I don't know. I could sleep on the floor still. Yeah. I mean, I can sleep anywhere. I'm telling you, you know, I've slept in airports and whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I think to answer your question, and it's quite a fundamental question. And here's, here's the rub. Good sleepers don't think about sleep. Yeah. They don't have to think about, well, how am I going to get to sleep? They just sleep, go to bed and they fall asleep and they don't think about it. And actually thinking and worrying about sleep is detrimental to sleep. So like an in insomnia, you know, we've got this classic sort of sleep anxiety loop, which says I am can't sleep. Now I'm worried that I can't sleep. Now I definitely can't sleep because I'm worried that I can't sleep. And this is a sort of maladaptive thought cycle we fall into. To me, and what we work on is the idea that what are we doing as a society? So 
So to have optimal sleep, yeah, we want to have individual factors to be good. So I want to be a good sleeper, but I need that opportunity to realize that good sleep, you know. So that's no good if I'm working 18 hours a day. I'm not going to be able to get sufficient sleep. If I'm sharing my, if I have to share my bedroom with four other people or whatever, I'm not going to get good sleep. So it's, it's nothing to do with me. It's my situational factors. Um, if I'm, if I'm, you know, have experienced trauma, you know, and the sort of high levels of mental distress, we know that's going to really impact my sleep. So all the things, you know, it comes back to all the old unsexy questions, you know, about social justice and, you know, fairness and equality in society. And we, you know, what we find a lot of in the societal discourse is no, we don't want to talk about that stuff. We want to blame cell phones or Twitter or Netflix or whatever, you know. We want, we want to, ban, you know, if I read another article about banning smartphones in schools or whatever, you know, okay, it, it may be part of the puzzle, but it's a minor part of the puzzle. The big parts of the puzzle are the stuff we know about and that the stuff we've known about for years, but it's the stuff that's difficult to to challenge and to capture. And in sleep science as a whole and in sleep medicine, it's really come to the fore now over the last maybe five years that sleep is a social justice issue, you know. Um, some of us have the luxury of being able to afford, if you like, the best sleep options available, but lots of people don't, you know. So again, if you're living in a crowded inner city area with poor housing stock, noisy, light pollution, hot, and this is probably going to become a really big thing with climate change. Um, we know poor, you know, heat sinks within cities tend to be poorer neighborhoods. So all those things are going against you. So so the people with the biggest amounts of socioeconomic challenge to begin with are also being have the most challenge to their sleep health, which then probably knocks on, you know. So now we're in a vicious circle as well. Um, so it's a to me, cycle. Yeah, it's it's a cycle. You know, it's like other aspects of poverty and socioeconomic injustice. It it's a cycle, and it's it's part of that. Obviously, there are individual factors as well, but 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 again, you know, there's often in society there's or in Westernized societies there's a you know there's a tendency to to focus on the individual factors and to nearly victim blame and say, well, you know, what are you not doing to make the best of your situation rather than focusing on the situation in the first place? So so to my mind, that's that's the biggest thing. And we could, and, and you've been mentioning why, you know, earlier sleep duration and sleep quality getting worse and worse and worse with subsequent years. Well, why is that happening? You know, it's not, we're not changing as fundamental human beings, you know. We're the same people we've always been. What's happening is our societal factors are changing. Um, and we're sort of eroding the things. And sleep is one of the sort of um, bystander casualties, if you like, of that. So so I think, in my view, that's, that's, the, that's the biggest 
the biggest factor um, available. So, so one of the things, um, just to give an example here in Ireland, we've got record numbers of people now of adults, um, so people in their 20s and into their 30s now continuing to live at home in their childhood bedrooms because they're locked out of the property market. Rents are so crazy. It's two grand a month here where I live. Yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 the same here. It's the same here. So now we've got half a million 20 and 30 year olds living in their childhood bedrooms. Um and again, that's 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 nuts. And one of the reasons, you know, but we can even view that as a sleep problem because now you're not living to your rhythm, you know, if because like you know. If I moved home, my dad would be up like at six in the morning hoovering because he's 80. And that's a normal thing for an 80-year-old to do. You know, that's where his body clock is at and that's the rhythm of their household. But now that's not the rhythm of a household for someone in the 20s and 30s. So it's impacting on even just thinking, you know, to the narrow lens of sleep. That's that's what's happening then. Yeah. So it's 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 a yeah, those those big sort of societal issues to me are the are, are the big thing. And the other thing that's happened a lot, I think, is work. Work has just spread and taken over our lives. You know, we we've gone to you got to prices gone up, man. Everything's gone up, but but work. What I mean is, work used to be like nine to five. Who works nine to five now? Who has a job that they can just knock off at 5 p.m. and say, that's that, I'm done, I'm on the train home. Um, so, so it was, you know, so we're checking our phones, we're, you know, working, whatever. Um, but but that impacts on sleep because that sort of, as we dilute the difference between our home and our work lives, and one of the things we know we want to try to do for good sleep is to sort of get rid of the detritus of the day before we try to sleep. And that's pretty difficult if you're in a bedroom and your workstation's in the corner of your bedroom and whatever, you know, that's that's a constant reminder of all the stuff you should have done today that you didn't and and all that. So again, I think work and work patterns is 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 a big one for me as well. And look, we've had a big change during COVID and we await to see what happens in the longer term from that. I don't know. I don't know what will happen. Um, Hopefully something good. We need a win. We need a win. I I don't know. I'm sort of pessimistic. I'm pessimistic too, but I'm trying to be optimistic. (laughs) Andrew, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show, man. You've given me enough of your time, but is there a place where people can find any of your links? Do you have any social medias, websites, books, anything? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at at Coogan Lab, or if you just put me into the Google machine, uh, Professor Andrew Coogan, I'll pop up at uh, Minute University here in Ireland. And I'll link those in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.